I turned 49 in a week, which, as anyone turning 49 will tell you, is super weird. It doesn't feel like you think it should feel. I still think of myself as young, as current, as in the moment. I see the gray specks of hair, the wrinkles around my eyes, but I don't absorb them as anything tangible. I'm still Jeff, up-and-coming writer, working his ass off, watching Netflix and listening to the Dua Lipa and chugging iced coffee and living with each word and... Fuck. Who am I kidding? My back hurts, my fastball doesn't reach 90, and I'm always in need of a nap. So young writers, enjoy these days, because you're going to blink and sit where I do, on a heated recliner. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Jamal Green, my former baseball colleague at Sports Illustrated, who, after leaving the world of glossy magazines, clerked for Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens before becoming the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Jamal is the author of an outstanding new book, How Rights Went Wrong, why Our Obsessions with Rights is Tearing America Apart. This is episode number 203. Let's sling some yang. All right, Jamal, welcome to the podcast. Let me ask you a question. I want to start with this. Is there a parallel universe where you're coming on my podcast to talk about covering baseball for the athletic and you're like the beat writer for the San Diego Padres? I think it was never going to happen. I think I could have gotten better at the job that I once had um, as a reporter. But I can't imagine getting to a point where I would have been comfortable doing it for 20 years or, or, or longer than that. And I think a lot of that is my personality. And, and a lot of that is, has to do with the reasons I left Sports Illustrated. One has to do with me and, and the other has to do with the industry. But I think they're, they're related to each other. You know, I, I think I was never going to, to be a good sports reporter. I think I could have become a decent writer, meaning crafting the words and putting a story together. And that I think just comes with age and maturity and, and, and so forth. I think the same is true of you um, as I think about your, your path. But as a reporter, someone who's, got a, who's, gonna, who's gonna dig up a story and, and get a scoop and you know, spend a lot of time with, with a source and work a story and work an angle, I was never really trained to do that. And I was never really good at it. And I, I didn't get excited about doing it either. I think I could have become a better writer, but I but I don't think you last too long in the business if if you're not actually a good reporter. And I don't think I would have gotten there. But it was also I I think I realized after I left that one of the things that I didn't like was having an audience, <laughs> which is to say I didn't like feeling like the things that I was writing were like served to order. You know, there was a customer, and the customer wanted or either wanted or the editors thought they wanted a, a certain product. And like your job as the writer was to, uh, was to produce that product. And over the time I was at Sports Illustrated, it became more and more oriented towards customer service in that sense. And I, that, just didn't that just didn't touch me in any way. If you're, if you're in it because you like to write in a certain way, and then you've got to, you know, you got to write in a way that's going to get eyeballs. You're not really writing with the kind of integrity that you um, that you want. And I, I and I felt that, and I didn't think I was ever going to get to the point, for good reason. I was never going to get to the point where I had the kind of autonomy to write in the way that I wanted to write. All right, I was always of the impression. I always felt you didn't get a fair shot. I remember telling people 
this guy's talented and he's young and he's, he's really good. I remember vividly being in a meeting and there was all the senior writers and staff writers. Phil Taylor, who was the only African-American senior writer, said, how come there's not more diversity on this staff? And Peter Carey's response was, you know, if we could find it, we would hire it. And I always thought, that's freaking, A, that's freaking ridiculous because I can name 30 great people you could hire right now, probably more. And number two, you have this kid who's freaking great. I never thought you got a fair shot and I never thought they worked to cultivate you and I never thought they worked to develop you. And I thought they had this kid who was really, and we've joked for years, I just want to say, myself, John Wertheim, others, yeah, this guy, he wasn't, he wasn't good enough to cover the Brewers, but look at him and look what he's accomplished. I, I think, you know, I, and I, I wasn't inside those meetings. I mean, I, so no one ever said to me, you know, Jamal, you suck or anything like that. Right. But, but I, you know, I got, you know, I got passed over for, for promotions a few times. Uh, so that's, that tells you in, in a way, I think it can both be the case that I wasn't given a fair shake and wasn't given support and also be the case that the judgment that they made about me was right. All right. So you have a new book out, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. When I read your bio, before training as a lawyer, he was a baseball reporter for Sports Illustrated. And one of the things I really love about your book is it's actually really breezy. It's just really enjoyable and pleasurable reading for a subject that tends to be very heavy. When you live in your world, but you have a past as a journalist, when it comes to writing, do you feel like that gives you a different stylistic approach than maybe other colleagues? I, I think it totally, totally does. And I'm glad you said that about the book because uh, when, when you're in the academy for, you know, for now, now 13 years for me, you know, you, you, you worry that you lose, you lose the ability to write for people who are not academics. And, and I, I really wanted to be able to do that with the book. The themes of the book are, 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 comp are complex, right? They're not, it's not a, it's not a book about the brewers, right? But I, but I did try to write it for interested, curious people who are not necessarily lawyers. But, but in terms of um, the world I live in, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I live in the law academic world where we, we get a lot more freedom to sort of write with your own style than I would if I were in another academic department. Law professors have one foot in the academy and also in another foot in practice and in a kind of practice where communication is really important. And you see that difference. You know, if I go to the political science department, we might be writing about somewhat similar things, uh, but the way in which you have to write a paper to get it published in a top political science journal is totally different than publishing something in a, in a law review. The big thing about journalism is that I think has helped me is, is I don't get writer's block. There's always times when you don't, you know, you're not writing something in exactly the way you want to write it, but like, I don't sit there for days, like staring at a screen, like it's just not, it's just not in me. And I think a lot of that was journalism training. You know, you get it done. And then if you have time, you can edit it, but you got to get it done. There's a term in journalism that I actually hate. I'm not telling you, I'm telling people, you know, they call it the nut graph, which is what is this, what is this story about? I always hated the nut graph, right? But there was a, I had something start here and I put this is kind of the nut graph of the book, which is you wrote, um, rights conflicts are not mystery novels. They are principled, often reasonable disagreements about political morality that affect the intimate lives, the hopes and dreams of actual people. We don't disagree about rights because some of us are correct about the rights we have and others of us wrong, lacking the clues needed to solve the mystery. We disagree about rights because we are human beings who are different from one another and yet must live together. We need a different strategy for responding to competing rights, a strategy of rights mediation. I found that really strong. It actually sold me immediately. I was like, 100%. What are you trying to tell me? What is your pitch to the reader here that you're trying to pitch? 
I, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you pulled out that paragraph that gets to the heart of it. When I think about what's the first thing you need to know about this book, it's this book is about how we live together. It's about the fact that we are different from each other and we tend to judicialize rights conflicts. So like if I, if you and I have a conflict about something and one of us is able to say, this is a right, then it sounds like the kind of thing that courts are supposed to decide. It sounds like the kind of thing that the constitution supposed to say something about and that lawyers are supposed to decide. And lawyers decide things in a certain way. They abstract, at least in, in the US, they abstract, um, they legalize, uh, they solve problems by looking at texts and by looking at history and by um, looking at precedents. But most people solve problems by like figuring out how to work out the problem, right? They, it's like, well, you're doing this to me, you know, can you stop? Uh, well, if I stopped, then I wouldn't be able to accomplish my own objective. Like, well, let's figure out how we can like work this out. Is how is how you'd work out an ordinary conflict. But we we somehow um, think that once you say the magic word rights, right? Suddenly, it's not an ordinary conflict anymore. Now it's like some kind of existential constitutional conflict. And then you give it to you give it to courts. And so, coming from my world, which is the world of courts and the world of lawyers, I'm trying to reintroduce the ordinary modes of conflict resolution <laughs> into the ways that courts and lawyers talk about rights conflicts so that we're having the same conversation. So that when you when you give it to the court, the court says, well, I'm going to give it right back to you because here's where you're wrong and here's where you're wrong. Now work it out. So it's, it's about pluralism um, and living in a pluralistic society and about the fact that most of the time when I say that I have a right to something, it's because you also have a right to something. <laughs> and um, the person who's Who's, who I think is is keeping me back, like also has a right to something, and and it's about figuring out how how those how those rights can coexist, right? It's not about figuring out who's right and who's wrong. Are we just overly simplistic minded? Is that sort of like <laughs> we have broken it down to why well, have this right? You can't violate my right, and and then we have these stupid arguments, and we have idiots on TV screaming at each other and screaming using the word rights. This is my right a million times without having any context to what actually that sort of entails. I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's the root of it. I mean, it, I think that exacerbates it that I think social media and the way we interact with each other is, is through through modes of interaction that don't value like attention spans. I think that is certainly harmful. But I think at bottom, you know, we have this, I think it actually comes from a history that we have. And there's a underlying theme in the book about race and about our particular, Americans' particular problems with race and how... If you look out over the course of American history, there are several periods where legally you're the, through, through constitutional law, we're introducing protections for people uh, against discrimination on the basis of race, because we've got this kind of original sin. But then the, the, the country is not quite ready, willing to deal with, with racial discrimination as being a special kind of problem. And so we end up analogizing other kinds of problems to racial discrimination, like like if you have a right to, uh, to not you know be put in a segregated school, well, you know that's not something you negotiate or balance away. Like that's something that is really strong. You really have to take that seriously. Well, if that's the case, well, what about my right to not wear a mask when I go buy a taco? Right. You know, shouldn't you take that seriously too? Like so, so that kind of simplistic analogy. You know, the difference between those things is like one thing is about like white supremacy and terrorism, and the other thing is about like a pandemic and you know you just want to buy a taco it's not that important but but we when you use the same language the language of rights right suddenly 
courts feel like we can't adjudicate between, but we're just courts. We're, we have to be neutral between the taco guy and the, the girl who wants to go to school. Uh, and, and so we, we need a language that allows legal decision makers to feel comfortable saying that those are actually really different situations. Uh, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but not, not totally. I would think for someone who has devoted himself to sort of understanding the law and teaching law the way you have, this stuff makes your head explode. When you hear the person say, oh, they want this over there. Well, why do I have to wear a mask, blah, 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 blah. Because it makes my head explode and I don't even have a depth of legal understanding. It must make your head explode. Well, no, it doesn't, right? Because I actually think, and here, you know, here's, here's the kind of like the twist of the book, right? Is that, is that I actually think we should give a little bit more respect to the, to the mask guy. Um, uh, and, and by that, I don't mean we should say he can go into the top, you know, the taco place and, and, and not wear a mask. What I mean is that when you tell him you don't have a right and this other person does have a right to do the, something that he thinks isn't important or that person thinks is, then what you're, you're saying is that the constitution like cares about some people's rights and some people's interests and not others. And our legal system has evolved to a place where judges think that that's their job is to say, you know, who the constitution kind of favors and who it doesn't. And I think that that's incredibly polarizing um, to take that posture. So that guy is never going to be convinced that he doesn't have a right to go maskless. You're not going to convince, you're going to say like, oh, well, I, I looked in the law books and, it, you know, Madison didn't believe in that, you know, he believed in mask wearing, <laughs> right? That's not going to be persuasive to him. Uh, and so therefore, like the constitution doesn't care about you, but it does care about whether, you know, someone's allowed to to uh, watch a porno movie. <laughs> like that's totally protected. And it is totally protected constitutionally. That's a first amendment issue. That person's totally protected, but you want to go out, you know, without a mask on, you got no protection. Well, that doesn't make any sense to anyone. Right. And so I think there's some value in saying, yeah, you do have a right. Well, we also have a right to like protect ourselves by passing public safety laws and public health laws. And so we've got to reconcile those things. And so, yeah, you want to sit in your car and not wear a mask. That's totally your right. You've got a right to do that. But once you come into contact with other people, their rights come into play too. And we may disagree about what the outcome is, but that's the kind of language that it makes perfect sense for courts to talk about. And also perfect sense for ordinary people to talk about is, yeah, lots of people have rights and they, they conflict with each other. And that's the problem. It's not the problem isn't that you're wrong, that you have rights. It's that other people are, are right that they also have rights. With everything going on right now with the Georgia election laws, and you hear a lot of people defending the, the shifts by saying, look, we're just trying to secure an election. We're just trying to secure an election. As someone in your shoes, do you try to understand what the other people are saying and empathize with their position? Or do you find this such an egregious breach of rights that it just pisses you off? I mean, it certainly pisses me off because I think that that in in Georgia and a number of other states, you know, the reason they're doing this is obvious, but that matters, right? So when you say, do you try to understand the other person's position? I think you should always try to understand the other person's position. And if you, if you, if you then try to understand it and it's totally flimsy, then you can say, well, this, you know, this is totally flimsy. All of the evidence, right? So why is it essential now to pass this kind of law? And why would you include a provision, you know, the sensational provision about water it smacks of both partisanship and um, possibly also racism in the purposes behind this law. I mean, you say, well, what, what, is there any legitimate reason? If you say, well, we want to prevent 
like voter fraud. Well, you know, well, what evidence do you have that there's voter fraud or that that's an actual problem? And it can't be the president said that it's a problem, President Trump. Um, you know, believe me, if there were lots of, if there were evidence of voter fraud, it would have been found, right? Because there are a lot of people looking for it uh, and it's not been found. And on the other hand, voting is really important. You know, political participation is really important. So if you, if you tell me I'm trying to solve this theoretical problem and we should care about voter fraud, right? If voter fraud is happening, that's a big problem too. I agree with that. But, you know, if you, if you were to tell me an analogy that I heard recently that makes, that makes, that I think is right, we, we're worried about a Martian invasion. <laughs> that would be really bad. Like, yeah, I agree. It'd be really bad if there were a Martian invasion, but do you have any evidence that's about to happen? Like, no, <laughs> but just in case we're going to, you know, prevent people from voting tomorrow because, you know, you don't want the Martian invasion to come. Well, you know, it's, it's the same thing, right? It's the same thing. And so what I think a decision maker, if you're a legal decision maker or a citizen, just trying to think about um, whether this is tolerable or not, you have to, you have to think about evidence, right? It's not just, I say fraud or I say some other reason, you got to think about what the reason is. Same thing with, you know, thinking about uh, about race, like in various ways, like affirmative action versus segregated schools. Well, they both involve racial discrimination. Well, yeah, but you got to think about reason. Wait, so just to be clear, because you live about 3,000 miles from me, there's not a Martian invasion or there might be? I don't know if there's a Martian invasion, but just in case, Jeff, don't leave your house. <laughs> and don't vote. No voting. Don't vote for sure. Yeah, because Martians hate voting. You had a chapter about campus speech that I found really fascinating. Actually, I'm working on a Bo Jackson biography, so I've been deep in the Auburn rabbit hole. Oh, yeah, and, Auburn. Yeah, and then you literally write about Auburn. You wrote, uh, Auburn University is a public school. In April 2017, a Georgia State University graduate student named Cameron Paget rented out the auditorium at Foy Hall, a building on Auburn's campus. Paget, a segregationist who described himself as a white identitarian, excuse me, was booking the space for a speech by Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi propagandist and fellow identitarian who coined the term alt-right. University initially agreed to allow Spencer to speak, then had canceled the event following protests. The school claimed that it was doing so in response to a security threat, Paget sued and won. The Supreme Court interprets the First Amendment to require government neutrality regarding different speech content and especially different viewpoints. The judge in Paget's case dutifully recited the case law and noted correctly that the reaction of a hostile audience is not a content neutral reason to regulate speech. Surely Auburn would not have canceled a speech promoting racial equality based on the objection of racists. According to the judge then, the school had impermissibly uh, discriminated against Spencer on the basis of his speech and would need to let the talk proceed. You say there are many problems with the judge's approach. What are they? You know, we tend to flatten all, anytime someone says speech, or that speech is being regulated, we tend to treat that as if it's the same kind of problem, right? So if the government passes a law that says you can't engage in political speech opposed to the government, you can't, you can't criticize the government, we're going to put you in, in prison if you criticize the government. Well, that's, that's the worst kind of First Amendment violation. But if a university says, like, we have a student population, we make decisions about educating our students, and we've decided that we don't want to uh, a racist propagandist to show up and like yell racial epithets at our students. Same thing, <laughs> you know, same thing as if the government were punishing people for political speech. And that flattening is, I think, intensely destructive because not paying attention to what kinds of institutions are speaking and what kinds of, what the, what the remedies are, what the punishments are, 
I think contributes precisely to the kind of incivility that we that we lament from a from a First Amendment lawyer's perspective. Right, they look at that Auburn case and they say the First Amendment requires that the government not discriminate on the basis of the content of speech or on the viewpoint of the speaker. And in that case, that's exactly what the government is doing. But take a slightly different case. Auburn has to decide whether to admit a student or not. They've got one spot left. One student writes an essay saying, I hate all black people and I want them to die. And I'm a, I'm a white nationalist. And another student says, I would like to spend my time at Auburn working towards racial equality and healing. And the admissions officer says, okay, I think we've decided I'm gonna pick the racial equality and healing person. On the rationale of the judge in that Auburn case, the, the school has violated the First Amendment by doing that because they've discriminated on the basis of the content of the speech of the student they admitted. Well, that's obviously absurd <laughs> that a university like can't care about which ideas are high quality ideas and which ideas are low quality ideas. I get that the police shouldn't care about that. They're engaged in a very different government function. But the fact, the idea that a university shouldn't care about that misunderstands that it's a university, right? So part of the plea of the book is to say, look, there are a lot of really important contextual factors that you flatten when you start to yell rights, rights, rights. And we do that all the time in the First Amendment context. And I could give you a million examples of ways in which we are perfectly comfortable with the government regulating our speech, but we just haven't thought about the fact that it's government regulation of speech. So like if the government passes a law that says air traffic controllers have to give accurate information to pilots, let's say, government regulation of speech, oh no, First Amendment, you know, content discrimination. Well, no, that no, we, we, we have to think carefully about what the context is. And so my worry isn't that necessarily that the judge got that wrong in the Auburn case, although I think they did, but the kinds of questions we should be asking are not, is this speech being regulated by a public actor of some kind? Of course it is, but that happens all the time. And so the, the real question is, well, why is it being regulated? What's the reason for it? What's the evidence for it? Well, what alternatives might there be? Could Richard Spencer go across the street to the public park and give the same speech and have the students attend the speech and learn the same things, but just not on the university campus? Yeah, sure, that's not a problem at all. So what are we worried about here? Like we're actually not gonna let a university control who uses its, its campus when there's actually no cost to the speaker. So you ask what pisses me off, that, that kind of thing pisses me off. Before we continue with two writers singing in, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who has a huge announcement to make. Next year, I'll be attending college at the University of California, San Diego. Ugh, big fucking deal. Dad. I meant the other huge announcement. Are we really doing this? Uh, yeah, we are. Fine. If you go to 503-sports.com, there are all sorts of new throwback jerseys, hats, and t-shirts available. It's quite exciting. You know what? Go off to college, egghead. This is going to sound incredibly simplistic and probably stupid. Is the Constitution not prepared for the complexities of social media? And what social media has thrown into this world and into the society when it comes to speech and expression and what is put out there? Is it just a, uh, an incomplete document when it comes to sort of modern utterances? I think the constitution is really flexible. It's the second shortest constitution in the world. Uh, only Monaco has a shorter constitution. Uh, and most of the rights provisions it has are, are really vague. And that's by, by design, right? The, if the constitution says treat people equally, well, that shouldn't be thought of as a, all that limiting. You've got to figure out in your time with respect to the particular facts of of anyone's 
particular circumstance, like are they being treated equally or not? That's a judgment call. And the constitution contemplates that like reasonable people are going to disagree about how to apply it. And that's important. But on social media, I also tend to think, and this is consistent with what I just said about Auburn in the First Amendment, that I think people get a little bit out of control when it comes to the kinds of things they worry about when it comes to social media. You know, that social media is this grand regulator and is sort of is like preventing people from talking and it's this big threat to speech. And I just don't see it um, or see what the worry is. There are lots of ways in which social media companies regulate speech. Uh, and a lot of those things are ways where most of us would want them to. You know, if you go on to Instagram and all you see is spam and porn, right? Like some people would like that, like 13 year old boys might like that, right? But, but most people wouldn't and they'd stop using the service. Well, that's, that's content moderation, right? That's not threatening to anyone. I think we always need to think about the context and the alternatives available to people when we think about whether we should be concerned about their rights or not. Yeah, if you're being thrown in prison, if you're being prevented from flourishing in some way and getting a post taken down from Facebook or from Twitter is not preventing you from flourishing <laughs> um, for the most part, then we should be really worried. But if not, I'm not that worried. I remember when we were at Sports Illustrated, we were, uh, we were talking one day and you said to me, um, my brother has a, has a, he's part of like this hip hop duo and he has an album out. And I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, if you go down to, it was the Virgin Mega Store that wasn't that far away. <laughs> I go to the Virgin Store and you'll, you'll see, you're like, it's called Black Star. And I walked down to the store and I remember this vividly. I was looking all over and I couldn't find it. And I came back and I was like, yeah, they didn't have it. And you go, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they have it if you go back. And I go back and I ask, and it's like in this huge display by the front. And I bought this great album, Black Star, which was most deaf and, and your brother, Talib Kweli. And your brother's a great, great hip hop artist and who actually has a book out right at the same time you, you do called Vibrate yeah. Higher. I always feel like there's a story that's been missed here. That could have been a great New York Times story or New Yorker story or something about you two guys and your really fascinating careers. And someone in your house did something right, your parents or you guys or whatever, because it, it's kind of amazing. It's really fascinating. How do two guys, two siblings, have these really fascinating, high level, totally different branches on a tree, but some similarities in a way, kind of careers? So I, so I do appreciate the human interest um, angle, which, I, which I, I encourage you to, to pitch to The New Yorker. Um, uh, Jeff, you could it's be a great story. It is a you, great you'd, story. You'd be the ideal person to write this story. There you go. I don't know. I mean, we're not that different from each other. I mean, I think if you do, if you look superficially, you would say, okay, these people are in totally different spheres. And you know, he's he, you know, he his his politics are a bit more radical than mine. I just saw the the New York Times just describe my book as racing in its radical moderation. <laughs> uh, so I'm radically moderate, and he's more radical. But I, but I think. As you know, Jeff, within his, you know, within his sphere, he's like considered like the, he's like the intellectual hip hop artist. Um, and if you actually listen to him talk about anything, you know, put, put the music to one side because the music is always going to take a certain form. It's entertainment. But if you ever listen to him talk, like he's, he's a very thoughtful guy. <laughs> and I always learn things when I, when I talk to, to my brother and just like, we, we don't disagree about lots of stuff. Like we don't get in fights. Like we, you know, he, we have different 
he's a bit more erratic than I am emotionally, I think. He can be a little bit more active on social media, I will say. Um, but we're not that, we're not all that different. And I, I do think when I teach, and I think people who, who teach to large audiences, and I, I know you teach too, Jeff, uh, you inhabit a certain persona, but you perform, um, especially if you teach a lecture course. And I sort of see that in him on stage as well. Like he's this, he's one guy sitting at the Thanksgiving table. And then another person, when he, when he goes out on stage, he just like transforms into this performer. And I think, you know, you describe me as quiet, uh, which I think a lot of people describe me as, but I'm not quiet when I'm lecturing in front of a, an audience. And so I, I think there are a lot of kind of interesting parallels to how we do our work. And, and it, it maybe says something about how people live in the world, how you can't tell too much by someone's public face uh, that everyone is a little bit more complicated than they look like they are. And that maybe is in some ways a lesson to us as we think about how to navigate the world and how to interact with each other, right? That, you know, if you, if you actually sit down and talk to someone, there's a surprising amount that you can learn. Um, so see how I'm, I'm bringing this back to the themes of the book, which is also about if you look beyond like shouting rights, 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 like there's a lot more interesting things to say about a lot of our con conflicts. Are you able, are you a person who is able to, I don't know, your neighbor moves in. This literally happened to me. My neighbor moves in, new neighbor, and the first thing they do is hang up a Blue Lives Matter flag. And my first response is, "Ugh, Jesus Christ!" You know, and and I immediately assume the worst, and I'm offended, and I'm annoyed, and I decide I'm never going to talk to these people, and I'm just going to move on with life. Is that a bad approach? Do you feel like to modern society, are we are we too entrenched in our own, or is it okay to say, "Ugh, that guy's a Trump flag up." That guy has a Blue Lives Matter. That guy supports the Georgia voting regulations. And I want nothing to do with that person. I think it maybe depends on what flag we're talking about. Right? So, <laughs> Look um, at that Nazi flag. Hey. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's there are some behaviors that I think are just always unacceptable and some where there's what we call in academia an overlapping consensus about something. So, you know, people who fly a Blue Lives Matter flag, like some of those people might be neo-Nazis, but like some of those people might just be someone whose brother's a cop or whatever. I think it is healthy to to not assume the worst of people. And when we're talking about neighbors, like I'm not that friendly, right? So I'm not the kind of person who's going to like bring a cup of sugar over to my to my neighbor um, unbidden. And that's maybe just partly growing up in Brooklyn. Like it's not how we how we interact with each other, right? But I'll tell you this, like if I were having a bar neighborhood barbecue and wanted to just like invite my neighbors. Like I wouldn't not invite the Blue Lives Matter person, right? I would say like, hey, come over and like, let's talk. And if you talk and then it turns out that that person's like no good and that they could be no good flying any kind of flag in a personal sense, well then then you, you can make a decision. But I, I really do think, you know, down to my bones that there's a lot more good faith in the world than it looks like there is if you just look at Congress or if you just look at social media that if you actually speak to people and interact with, you, with them, that, 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 that's, that, that actually takes us a long way towards being able to mediate conflict. You know, I think about the fact that, you know, there's, there's a number of studies about this, like the thing that changes racial attitudes and the thing that is also something that changes attitudes about homophobia, it's like knowing someone, someone in your family is gay, like you're gonna feel differently over time about homosexuality. You, your white daughter marries a black man. Uh, well, maybe you were, standoffish and and had a certain set of attitudes but then you know, over time you get to know someone and 
and that changes your attitude. There's lots of evidence that that works. And I, I don't think it's just in race and it's, it's in lots of other things where understanding someone, where someone's coming from can take you some of the way rather than I'm just focusing on the symbols they put out into the world. And that's why I go back to social media is that often people are performing in a certain way on social media. And when people are performing, then they're gonna act a certain way that may not necessarily reflect ordinary social behavior. And the, the worry is if, is if we get to a point where that's where people are who they are on social media, right? That, that's how we live our lives. If you live, live your life entirely through a screen, that the screen becomes who you are. And you now we've evolved to a place as humans where social interaction has a softening effect. We're less likely to, to attack each other if we know each other. And that's an evolutionary response. We need to reinforce that. Let me say a final thing. You, um, I, I, I maintain you, you have a quiet, soft-spoken presence about you, which is, I think, an endearing quality, actually. Promoting a book can be an obnoxious endeavor. How have you enjoyed the process of book promotion? It varies. Um, uh, and, and you're right about the, that the aspects of it that, um, that someone with my personality may not necessarily enjoy. Now, I've I've, wrote, I've written a certain kind of book. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to get invited on on Mike Francesa's show to talk about my book. So the kind of outlets that are interested are maybe a little bit in a different lane. But I'm not I'm not a promotional or self promotional person, and I'm so lucky that I don't need to sell this book to to live. <laughs> you know, like that's. Right. It's not my livelihood. I would like to sell the book because I think the ideas are important and I want people to hear them. Like I don't need to jump on a bunch of bestseller lists. Um, that, that's not going to put food on my table or not put food on my table. That's very freeing in the way in which you promote the book, right? And you, you would know this better than I would. Um, I envy everything you just said. Well, I'm, that's just why I'm glad. I hope, I hope you're getting good money for Showtime because uh, that, that, that would help. Let me ask you a final, final question. It's an important one. Back uh, when you were at Sports Illustrated, you wrote a profile. M is not for mellow. Mitch Molusky, Houston's your basketball catcher, is learning to curb his temper. What can you tell us about your experiences with former Houston Astro catcher Mitch Molusky? I will tell you that that piece was was literally my favorite experience at Sports Illustrated. It was actually one of the rare times when I actually did what, what a good writer does at Sports Illustrated and sort of lived the good life of a writer at Sports Illustrated. You know, he lived with his mom in North Yakima, Washington. Uh, and it was like in the off season. So I went to North Yakima and like we had lunch and then he invited me over for taco night with him and his mom. You know, you, you had me at taco night, man. So <laughs> So we so we go to taco night and we have this long, really cool conversation. I mean, he was a he was a cool guy. Um, long conversation about the business, about you know being someone coming in. You know, he was a rook, sophomore rookie. I mean, he's early in his career, and some of the travails that he had coming through the system. We talked a lot about steroids, and this was before the steroid stories had bro broken. And how he was like, you know, don't tell anyone that I said this, but like. It's everywhere and like it's it sucks and it's terrible, blah, blah, blah. I, st I still remember when I left his house, uh, it was pitch black, it was really late at night. And he had just told me about his dog, his new dog that he got. And he, he said, you know, we, we had to get a new one because the old one done got ate by the coyotes. And, and I was like, that's okay. And then like, I walk out into the pitch black, I, I literally can't see my car, like door closes. And then I hear a coyote howl. <laughs> Immediately, like after I walk out the door, like I thought I was about to die. Um, so I like scrambled to the car before I was 
you know, eaten by coyotes like his dog. Um, but then, but then I write the story, right? And then, like the next week, the Houston, the Astros beat writer, like sends a note saying, like, "Oh, I learned a lot of stuff I didn't know in that story." And there was an anecdote in there that I didn't even know about. And I was like, "Actually, I actually did my job," <laughs> um, and it was interesting and it was fun. But I, I, but I think that that I mean that from at least from my from my experience at the magazine, that was unusual. And I actually think part of it was you should, can tell me if you feel the same way, but you know, he wasn't a big timer, you know, like, you know, he was part of what I missed from, from writing in college, especially I was at Harvard and like, these were not, you know, big time athletes. And so it was very easy to get to know them. And they had interesting stories and interesting lives outside of their celebrity. But when you get to a point where you're writing a, a cover story or, you know, the person who is, who is at the top of their game, you know, most of those people in the professional sports world, either they're surrounded by so much junk that you can't really get to them and who they are as a person, or they've been so good for so long that, you know, there's not much going on other than like they train and they're good. So, so I think part of it was like, it felt, it almost felt like writing, writing a college story again, where you're really just talking to someone who, who's also trying to figure out how to, how to make it. I have a student where I teach at Chapman out here who, um, he's been covering preps for the LA times. And I recently was talking about sort of his dreams and his goals. And I was like, one day you're going to look back and think of all the amazing access and stories you got from all these high yeah. school kids who are thrilled to talk to you. It's one of the great unknowns of sports writing is that you think making it means you're writing about Mike Trout. And then you're standing across from Mike Trout hearing about how he drank his, his energy drink in the morning and then took more time in the cage and then showed up and put his wrist pads on and you missed the kid who whose mom made him tacos the night before and blah, 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 blah. So right. I'm with you 100%. Well, Jamal, I appreciate you doing this. And I just I just want you to know, I'm still holding out hope that one day you make it. Just think if you work hard and you put your mind to it, you can make something of yourself one day. And I just want you to know, I still believe in you. I still think you can do it. I, I feel the same way about you, Jeff. One day you'll get to law school and, and, and pursue your dream. That's awesome. I want to thank today's guest, Jamal Green, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Jamal on Twitter at Jamal Green and buy How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsessions with Rights is Tearing America Apart, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>